Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. Well, welcome back to our Dangerous Faith series. We're exploring the book of Acts through the lens of the persecuted church. Today is the last talk in this series, and I hope you've really enjoyed it. We found this talk to be really beneficial, and we want to begin by thanking the team at Open Doors for providing this incredibly useful resource to us. We've had some goals over this series. You can see them on the screen now. We've tried to get a better understanding of the birth of the early church and how persecution spread the gospel. We've tried to uh, deepen our own confidence in God during our own times of suffering. And also we've tried to grow in awareness of our brothers and sisters who live in persecution because of their faith across the world. So as we conclude this series today, why don't we just pause and just think about those different sections, those different aims for the series. And maybe think about some takeaways that you might have from this series. So maybe think about how your own understanding has grown about how the church was birthed all those years ago. And we, as we read that in the book of Acts, how we see how persecution scattered the church. How does that affect your faith and your understanding of what it is to live as a Christian? Maybe think about how your confidence uh, may have been strengthened and, and, and grown as you've looked at how believers have stood uh, in the face of persecution and suffering throughout the ages, and they, they still do in the present day. And maybe think about how your awareness of the persecuted church has grown and maybe you might want to spend more time praying for brothers and sisters across the world you can connect with the open doors resources on their website quite easily so maybe your awareness of what people go through and uh, and stand in the face of because of their faith has also grown and enlarged during this time and maybe you want to begin to pray regularly for people in the persecuted church Jesus said whoever hears my words and puts them into practice is like a man who builds a house, who digs down deep and lays the foundation on rock. And this putting into practice thing, I think, is the thing we most often struggle with as believers. When we put something into practice, we change our behaviours or our actions based upon a new belief or truth that we've heard or experienced. And so as we come to the, the end of this Dangerous Faith series, as we come into land on this series, how can you put into practice and apply some of the things that you've learned uh, and been exposed to over the past few weeks. Put them into practice, change your behaviours, change your thinking because of your understanding now of the persecuted church. And as you ponder that, let's watch the last video in the series and as, as usual, come back and we'll explore the themes in just a moment. Let me tell you about one of the bravest men I ever met. He was a church pastor in Colombia, and when I met him, he travelled with his family to attend a gathering of pastors, all of whom had faced persecution from anti-Christian guerrilla forces. He, his wife and three children had travelled for five hours to attend this event, all five of them on the back of one motorbike. My wife and I had the chance to sit with him and listen to his story. He'd followed a calling, he believed, to plant a church in a small village. It was hard going but soon Christians began to gather together in his house. And then he had a message from the guerrilla commanders. He was to stop. There was to be no more meetings. 
In Colombia, the communist guerrillas do not like independent churches like this. They don't like it when people discover a living faith, when they change their allegiance from some local warlord to the Prince of Peace. So they try to close them down. The pastor obeyed this command, sort of. He actually carried on meeting with the Christians in secret, but the trouble was it wasn't quite secret enough. One day when he and his family were away from the village, he got a phone call. And the phone call simply said that the guerrillas were waiting for him and would be there when he got back. He knew what that meant. It meant that he would be shot. What did you do? we asked him. What could we do? he replied. We went back. So they returned to what he believed would be his death. On the edge of the village there was a roadblock. Nineteen guerrilla fighters were waiting for him. They told him to leave the bike. So they climbed off the bike and then they walked through the roadblock and back towards their house. And the guerrillas followed them at a distance. I could hear their footsteps, he said. They sounded like the footsteps of death. And they got to the house and the pastor went into the room that he used as a study and he knelt down and he began to pray. And his son was outside and wanted to join him, but the pastor wouldn't let him because he truly believed that the guerrillas were going to shoot him through the window. He knelt there praying with all his heart and he could hear the guerrillas coming nearer and nearer. And then they just passed by. They kept on walking. He heard them pass his window and the footsteps fade into the distance. Something changed their minds. The power of prayer perhaps or the quiet courage and example of the man they'd come to kill. Anyway, we asked the pastor what his vision was now for the village. I want to build a church, he said. Don't you ever think of leaving, I asked. Oh no, he replied. I will not leave until Christ gives me the victory. In the spring of 57 AD, Paul returned to Jerusalem. He was aiming to return in time for the festival of Pentecost, but he actually had a few days over, so he, along with Luke and other members of his party, stayed in Caesarea, a city on the coast of the Mediterranean. And they actually stayed with Philip, one of the seven deacons, and someone who left Jerusalem many years before during the first bout of persecution. While they're staying with Philip, they were visited by a man called Agabus. Agabus is a prophet. He's come up from Judea and he lets Paul know exactly what is lying in store for him if he decides to go on and complete this journey. What Agabus does is he takes off his belt and binds it around Paul and tells him that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will be imprisoned and handed over to the Romans. This is not the first time that Paul has heard this message. A week earlier he'd been in Tyre, where the local Christians had begged him not to go on. Everyone, it seems, knew what was going to happen. Agabus was a prophet, but perhaps he didn't need massive prophetic powers to know that Paul returning to Jerusalem was a high-risk strategy. This, after all, was a city where he once hunted Christians and imprisoned them. Now he had switched sides, and people tend not to forget that sort of thing. So they know what's going to happen. But here's the thing, Paul knows what's going to happen as well. Earlier in the journey, in his uh, farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, he told them that he too had heard from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, he said to them, that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. 
There in Caesarea, everyone begs him not to go on. And then in verse 13 of chapter 21, Paul says this, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's friends and colleagues have spent too many years with the old campaigner not to know that he's not going to change his mind. So they simply say, the Lord's will be done and prepare for the journey. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Paul ends in chains. He goes to Jerusalem. He meets opposition. A mob is raised against him. He's arrested and mistaken, in fact, for a terrorist. There's a threat against his life, so he's taken back to Caesarea, only this time in chains. And he ends up staying there for two years. It's the start of what was probably his final imprisonment. And it all begins because Paul is ready to be bound and even to die in Jerusalem. Why? Why was he so determined to go to Jerusalem? We know he was taking a collection for the Jerusalem church. Certainly he wants to demonstrate unity with the churches elsewhere in the Roman Empire. But there would have been other ways to do that. I think in the end, the reason Paul went to Jerusalem was that he simply couldn't not go. He was under orders impelled by the Spirit and by his own calling. And it was no good saying to him that he would be made a captive. He already was a captive. When he talks to the elders from Ephesus, he describes himself as a captive to the Spirit. The Spirit was telling him to go. So that was decided. What Paul knew was that chains and captivity do not mean defeat. On the contrary, as he wrote to the Corinthians, he knew he already had all the victory through Jesus Christ. What he could see ahead was the opportunity to tell others about it. That was his goal and his mission. His friends were worried that he would be captured, that he would be defeated. But in the Christian life, captivity is not defeat. Being abused, victimised, oppressed is not defeat. Poverty, humility is not defeat. In the Christian life, the only defeat is disobedience. That pastor in Colombia talked about Christ giving him the victory, but I think he was already a victor. I think that victory was won the moment he got back onto the bike and returned home, because it showed the guerrillas that they could threaten him, they could even kill him, but they could never defeat him. So in this week's video, Nick explained how the Apostle Paul He's journeying back to Jerusalem. He's, he's gone from Macedonia, which is sort of, uh, um, sort of modern-day Greek and Turkey, and he's, he's travelling back, and he's heading back to Jerusalem. And on the way, he's staying with and connecting with various Christian friends uh, that he's encountered and, and helped plant different churches in different places. And during this journey, as he connects with his friends, they warn him about going back to Jerusalem. They know that people there are waiting to possibly arrest him, uh, to maybe imprison him, and maybe Paul is even facing death if he returns to Jerusalem. And so they implore him and they, they beg him and they say, don't go, don't go back to Jerusalem because we know what's waiting for you there. But Paul is adamant. Paul is adamant to return to Jerusalem even in the face of danger. And I want to explore today why is Paul so committed to making this journey even into danger. I want to focus on one small passage that we find in the book of Acts as Paul responds to the believers and friends in his life who are imploring him not to go. He's in a place called Miletus, which is a, a place on the coast in modern-day Turkey. And the people there are people that Paul has lived with. 
he's done life with, he's, he's been in community with, he's served and blessed, and clearly he dearly loves this group of people. He says uh, in Acts 20, he said, I serve the Lord amongst you with great humility and with tears. And so there's a real warmth of affection in Paul's heart for the people there in Miletus. Let's read from Acts chapter 20, we're going to read from verses 22. And this is Paul's response to his friends as they warn him not to go back to Jerusalem. He says this, this is Paul speaking. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. As we look at this small section, I think we can see that Paul's response is divided into two sections. I'm going to call those two sections today the what and the why. So in the first part of this response, Paul outlines the what, the what he is doing. He says he's compelled by the Spirit to return to Jerusalem. He says he doesn't know what will happen to him when he gets there. The only thing he does know is that he feels the Holy Spirit has warned him that he will face persecution and danger and hardship and this is the what of what Paul is going to do and then he goes on to explain in the next section the why the why he's doing this he considers his life worth nothing he says his only aim is to finish the race and he says he's fixed on completing the task the Lord Jesus has given him the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And we can see in Paul's life the threads of the what and the why are woven together in the fabric of his life. When you weave threads on a loom to make a fabric for a garment, you have horizontal threads and you have vertical threads. The horizontal threads are known as the weft and the vertical threads are known as the warp. And these two threads come together to form the fabric. You can see in this picture here how the weft and the warp weave in and out of each other to form a material that we can make clothing from. And as Paul responds to his friends and the believers in Miletus, he's explaining the weft and the warp of his life and how these two things fit together. The weft is the what he is doing, and the horizontal threads of his choices and actions, they're running this way, and this is what he's chosen to do. He's compelled the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't know what will happen when he gets there. He carries a warning from the Holy Spirit about impending persecution and he knows he may face imprisonment and even death. And these are all the horizontal threads of the actions that he's choosing to make. The warp, the vertical threads, they're the why, the why that, that thread through the horizontal choices and actions. And these vertical threads represent his connection to his loving Heavenly Father. And they connect him and they direct him. He says he considers his life nothing. His only aim is to finish the race. He's preoccupied on finishing his task. And his life is now all about testifying to the good news of God's grace. So together the warp, the weft, come together to form the fabric of Paul's life. And these 
These threads are now what, what have been exposed to Paul's friends and, and fellow believers as he describes his journey back to Jerusalem. His horizontal actions to go to Jerusalem, to face possible arrest, possible imprisonment, and maybe even death. These actions are woven together with the Holy Spirit, activity in his life that compels him, directs him, encourages him. He's got this unshakable belief in God's love and grace and mission. And he's been commissioned to go and spread the good news of the gospel to all people. He's trying to tell people that God is in the reconciling business, bringing all things back to his love. Now, I know this picture of the warp and the weft isn't perfect. You know, our lives aren't done just on the horizontal and God isn't up there in the vertical. But I think this, this, this idea, this imagery of us being woven together, our actions and our choices being driven by our, our beliefs and our values, it's a really important, helpful image. When you hear stories, as we've heard over the past few weeks in the Dangerous Faith series, when we hear the story today about the Colombian pastor who returned home, even though facing possible certain death from the, from the drug cartels in the area he was working, as we read about Paul journeying back to Jerusalem to face persecution and imprisonment, we think, could I ever do what these guys do? We face a little bit of intimidation. We, we think, could I ever stand up and make the courageous choices that they make in these situations? I think what Paul shows us as he talks to his friends, as he's journeying back to Jerusalem, is that choices don't come out of a vacuum. The weft of our choices, that the what we do, is supported by and undergirded by the why in our lives. And this, this why is the warp of our beliefs, you know, what undergirds and, and, and strengthens and supports our actions. Paul has come to a place where he considers his life nothing. A better translation might be that Paul's got a new perspective. He's living out of a bigger priority than his own well-being. He's had an incredible encounter with the Lord Jesus. And now that has become his biggest priority, his main focus. He isn't going to let the fear of, of persecution or arrest stop him from spreading the good news of the gospel. So the weft of these courageous choices that Paul is making is held together by the warp of his connection with the God he knows that loves him and sustains him. Paul knows what is likely to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. You read on, you find that Agabus prophesies that he'll be arrested. His friends kind of know what's going to happen. But even so, he's single-minded about his course of action. He can't stop, be stopped from going there, even by well-meaning friends. Last week, Jake did a great talk on the importance of, of community and how we're discipled and we grow in the place of community. And in Paul's life here, we see him wrestling with, with the love of his friends, with community and with the call of God upon his life. In chapter 20 in Acts, it says this, they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they may never see his face again. And in Acts chapter 21, the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Am I ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus? When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. 
Paul's friend's motives for not wanting him to go to Jerusalem, they're good motives. They love him. They fear for his, for his safety. They'll, they'll miss his presence in their community. And if Paul was just operating out of the weft of his life, then his friends may have dissuaded him from going to Jerusalem. There, there was their well-meaning love and, and compassion and support and encouragement may have turned him away and kept him away from Jerusalem. But Paul also had the warp of the vertical connection with God's Holy Spirit in his life. And this was compelling him forward. He says to them, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? He's caught in the tension of missional community. Missional community is costly. Sometimes God calls us from one community to another with a mission and a mandate. And this was our story. This was Key and I's story. We, we, God called us from Birmingham, from a loving community there, down to Whitstable. The journey was punctuated by many tears that we shed, that our family shed, that our friends shed. But the warp of our lives at that point, the connection with God and his direction was, was so compelling. In fact, we'd never experienced such direction uh, before. The strength of those warp threads, if you like, was so strong, calling us down here to Whitstable, that we had to sort of sustain and, and go through the tears into the next mission and mandate that God had called us to. We knew it was the right thing to do. Paul's friends, as they, as they, as they weep and, and embrace him, they know he's responding to the Holy Spirit's call on his life, but it's still costly. They still bear the cost of that community tear that's happening as Paul decides to head into Jerusalem. Paul felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to go there. This was his mission. This was his mandate. He loved his friends. He loved his fellow believers. But God was saying, this is where you need to go next. And these vertical threads of connection to God were so strong, they drew him. They drew him back to Jerusalem. His greatest fear was not the tears of his friends or even persecution in Jerusalem. His greatest fear was being disobedient to the calling that God had placed upon his life. It's worth remembering that the Christians in Jerusalem that Paul is returning to, that the persecution they're suffering there is partly of his making. Paul was present at the stoning of Stephen. Strange then that he wants to go back to the place where he initiated persecution, where he caused a scattering of believers and the early church. Paul had been a persecutor of believers. He knew this. But he also knew that now he was a receiver of God's grace and love. He'd been forgiven. He'd been restored. And God had commissioned him now to take that loving message of reconciliation far and wide to many people, especially the non-Jewish communities. But now it was time to return back to where it all started, back to Jerusalem. Paul is fixing his eyes on finishing the race that God has marked out for him. This is his preoccupation. He wants to run the race and finish it. This is, this is his course and this is what God has called him to do. And that's his main concern. That's his primary concern. And he's pushing on towards that goal. He knows that Jesus has the victory in all things. And that to him is the only thing that now matters. And everything else is kind of falling away as he pushes on to this goal of finishing the race that God's called him to. So think about the weft and the warp in your life for a moment as we put that picture back on the screen now. As you look at this picture of the horizontal and the vertical threads, what would you overlay? What would you overlay on the horizontal, on the actions and choices 
that you make. And what would you put on those the vertical threads? What would be the, the, the connections, the beliefs that undergird those choices and actions that you make? Some of these beliefs that you carry might be true. Some of these beliefs that you carry might actually be false. Some of these beliefs that you carry might be tested and proven. Some may be untested, but you still carry them and you still live by them. For the fabric of our lives to be held strongly together, I think we need to pay more attention to the vertical strands of the why. We're very good at focusing on the weft of our lives, the horizontal actions of the what, the, the what, the where and the when. That's all something that comes very easy to us. But the why of our lives is often neglected. We don't stop to reflect and think about why do we do what we do. The what of our lives has been severely constrained by COVID and lockdown. Uh, even if we didn't want to, we've been forced to look into the why of our lives, to, to focus on those vertical strands, you know, what do I really believe? Where is my security? What's really undergirding my life choices? As we've been shut in with ourselves, we've been brought face to face with those vertical strands of the why. So as you think about your life today, what's been revealed to you during the COVID pandemic? What has come to light about those vertical strands that undergird the choices and actions in your life? Has COVID strengthened or weakened those strands? Have some strands grown stronger? Have some strands been broken? Have you chosen to replace some of them? Does some, does some need healing and restoration? Are you confident today in God's love or has, has your confidence in God's love been shaken during this pandemic? Do you believe that Jesus can really deal with everything and anything that can separate you from the love of God? Or do you live under a sense of shame or guilt? Do you believe that God is still present and active in the world, even in the midst of COVID? Do you believe his kingdom is still coming or perhaps the pandemic has shaken that thread of God's activity and presence? Do you believe the Holy Spirit can speak to you in the same way that he spoke to Paul? Or perhaps you feel like Paul and other people are just special and God's forgotten you and wouldn't choose to speak to you in the same way. In the coming weeks, we're going to start a new series called Emerge, where we're going to look at how we return and come out of the COVID pandemic. We're going to look at how we can reflect and process what's happened to us during this time and how we can emerge into a new normal. We're going to become visible again. I think it's the best way to describe it. Visible to each other, visible in our communities, a visible presence as a church. And there's things that we need to process and reflect on as we move into the change and the challenge of, what, of the new season ahead of us. Oswald Chambers, the author of the classic devotional book, my utmost for his highest, he, he wrote this. Beware of paying attention or going back to what you once were when God wants you to be something that you have never been. Powerful words by Oswald. Stepping into something we've never been. I think it's true to say the normal we, un, we, we all knew once has gone. That normal is not going to come back in the same way. 
the phrase new normal has been banded about, but I think it's quite accurate. We're going to enter into a new season. We're going to enter into a, a time when things won't be the same as they were. I don't think they can be the same. John Foreman, who leads the Christian band Switchfoot, uh, he wrote a lyric back in 2003 for a song called On Fire. He said, I'm standing at the edge of everything I've never been before. And I think it's such a powerful prophetic statement of where we all are. We're standing on the edge of something we've never been before. We've never been a community of believers in a post-COVID age. We've never been a church in a post-COVID age. We're standing on the edge of something that's never happened before, never been before. And as we look over the edge, we see change, we see challenge, and we see opportunities. I think there's a back pressure of spiritual hunger in our communities now following COVID that God's going to really uh, just ripple out the good news to so many people. But there's going to be challenge and there's going to be change. And there's going to be growth that we have to do as we move into this new season. Nick Page said in the video, didn't he? He said, for a follower of Jesus, the only real defeat is disobedience. That's the only real defeat we can encounter once we come into connection with a loving Heavenly Father. And that was Paul's preoccupation. He didn't want to be disobedient to the heavenly vision that God had given him to carry the message of God's love. And so as we stand on the edge of the new, at the edge of something we've never been before, we need to look at the, the, the warp and the weft of our lives. What are the vertical strands that undergird us, that enable us to make courageous choices? able to, to, to step into the unknown, to step into the new season, to step into the opportunities that are going to be presented to us as we emerge from COVID. So as we close out this Dangerous Faith series, I want you to really spend some time maybe the next few days thinking about the fabric of your own life. Think about the horizontal choices, the weft of what you do. Think about the vertical connections that you have with God, the beliefs that you carry, the warp, that goes together to weave the fabric of your life. Pay attention to the why, the why you do what you do, and prepare yourself to step into the new season. We're going to journey this together over the next few weeks and months and prepare ourselves for all that God's got for us. So let's pray. Let's pray today for God's love and God's strengthening. So Lord Jesus, I pray that as we enter this new season, we become like the new wineskins that you talked about. You said the old wineskins couldn't hold the new wine because the new wine was, was too much, it was expanding. So God, the new wineskins are flexible, pliable, can stretch and expand as the fullness of your kingdom comes in. We want to be like new wineskins. We want to be able to be stretch and expand as the fullness is poured into us and poured out through us into our communities. So Lord Jesus, help us to, to look inside again. Help us to see where our security is, where our identity is. Help us to see where our foundations are, God. Help us to be people of courage. Give us your grace and love afresh, we pray today. And God, I pray for the strands, the strands that need attention in our life, the strands that need strengthening, the strands that need repairing, the strands that need replacing. Lord Jesus, would you come and do a work of transformation in our hearts over the next weeks and months. And God, help us to remember our brothers and sisters across the world who stand strong and courageous in the face of persecution. Help us to remember that our family, that we're one church connected across the globe by your spirit, and help us to pray for them and stand in the gap for them. And we ask this in your precious name.
Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.